0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the innovative historian Joe Gouldy. She's associate professor of, of history at Southern Methodist University and the author of Roads to Power, Britain Invents the Infrastructure State, and with David Armitage, The History Manifesto. She is here now to tell us about her latest book, which comes out today from Yale University Press. It's called The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. And it is a wonder. Dr. Gooley, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, Brian, I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Hello. Thanks for having
0: me. <laughs> well, I, I always worry about doing justice to a book, of course, on these things. But I, but this time, I'm just going to preemptively just admit defeat. There's just too much going on in this book to be able to to build a really only we're only going to scratch the surface here today. But but um, it's just such a wonder. I mean, it's it's big in scope, big in in size, but also like even just at the at, at the scale of like every four or five pages, there's something new and really fascinating happening, and we just won't won't be able to get into a lot of that here. But to start, I just love. I'd love I think folks would really appreciate it if you could sketch out for us kind of your path to the project. And you say some things about that in the book's introduction, where we meet you as a youthful environmentalist in some what I found deeply relatable anecdotes. Um, and uh, so can you just say for us, you know, how, how some of your formative interactions with landscape and and just the idea of landscape even began the journey that would end with you writing this book?
1: Uh, thanks. Thanks, Brian. So I'm, I'm someone who has written about land and the experience of land in lots of ways that aren't necessarily classified as environmental history. My first book was on roads. I have a collection of essays on the spatial turn that are, you know, about philosophical and even religious ideas about where the sacred is in the landscape. Um, But as I was writing this book, I mean, this is really my attempt to give a history of where we are in relationship to this planet and the politics of where we are with land. Hence the title, The Long Land War. Uh, to listeners, it'll be revealed. What is that war? I have a very specific war in mind. Maybe the most polit- important political conflict of the last century that you have never heard of. Uh, but I got i got started on this path as um, uh, probably when I was a 10-year-old. When I was 10, um, uh, Congre- Congress was starting to hear testimony they had been collecting testimony about, about global warming for at least at least 20 years at that point. But we had in 1989 the first congressional testimony made it abundantly clear that human-caused climate change was on the track that required political intervention. So I heard about that when I was 10 in a public school in Texas. Now in a very religious part of the country, but a part of the country that believed in science. I grew up in an engineering company town on the Silicon Prairie. So people went to church, they believed in God, but they also studied evolution and they listened to science and they wanted their children to listen to science. So we had excellent science teachers all the way through. And one of these excellent science teachers took it upon herself to explain uh, to our elementary school class, the greenhouse effect. So. As it was then known, the the effect of solar radiation getting trapped by carbon emissions in the atmosphere and causing the Earth's temperatures to rise. Now, that is, of course, the single most pressing political issue of our time today. But I remember thinking at the age of 10, oh, my gosh, this sounds really serious. And if the adults don't solve this by the time I'm grown up. Everyone my age is going to have to pitch in. I guess I should really pay attention. No, I filed that away, and it was—it wasn't a major part of my education. It wasn't a major part of my education as a humanist, somebody who studied literature and geography and history and architecture. I—I I was looking, I was looking for people who could tell me about this future where we would have to talk about the politics of climate change. And I—I, I, you know, honestly, I—I I studied under many great masters but uh the the course of trying to learn about politics and nations institutions government that i was on didn't have a lot of room in the 1990s and the early 2000s for discussions of climate change now that may be changing now i hope that it is um but i i i it by the end of that experience i had a lot of questions uh, so that's that's uh that's where my book starts in the at the age of 10 in the elementary school classroom thinking about <laughs> thinking about the earth getting warmer and experiencing existential dread and not knowing what to do about it.
0: That's great. well let's let's, let's jump into the mechanics of the book then a, a bit and you know, to, to really how you made this as you say kind of invisible war visible to us and suddenly become maybe you know I think you'll convince some readers that it is the war to think about in, in the last you know 140 years here. The terms you use that do the most work to, to get this um, to make, make this visible are occupancy and eviction. And could you explain to us you know, why these two concepts are so helpful for seeing links between disparate histories we don't usually put together?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I've done some writing about long-termism, about how, how we learn from history to think about the long term. And uh, I, I have some very specific angles in mind there. In particular, the kind of work that I'm doing in this book of taking a single theme and using a very long term of history to understand when there was a discontinuity in time. So I'm not interested in the long durée as a source for telling another meta-narrative about the greatness of the white race or Christendom (laughs) or North America or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in examining one category at a time over a very long period of time in order to understand what is different recently. So I, in the introduction I take off with the terms occupancy and eviction and I set them up as as the keys to understanding economic inequality. If you look at the very long longest history of of human experience there have been the people who held on to place and the people who were displaced. And we can we could take that story and make it as long as you want. I begin with stories about Babylonian evictions of the Jews, medieval evictions of Jews and Muslims, the enclosure enclosure of the European peasant commons, the evictions and displacements associated with settler colonialism, and the European empire in the 19th century, up to slum clearance and urban evictions in the 20th century. And there's, of course, an environmental story and one that's ongoing, the story that Mike Davis told us in Planet of Slums. From 1960 to 1980, 28.4 million people were displaced in Brazil Mm alone by the conversion of smallholder plots to industrial-scale farms. And another 20 million people were displaced by industrial agriculture in the same time period in India. The large-scale farms uh, also rope this into an environmental story because not only are individuals being displaced, but the large-scale farms don't hold carbon into the ground, it goes into the air. And the people, meanwhile, go to cities without sewerage and water, running water. They're moving from a low-energy lifestyle to a high-energy-consuming lifestyle, and they're displaced, which means they've lot of, lost a lot of their community ties and a lot of their political political power. And then, and then you can bring that story of eviction and displacement up to date with the mortgage and eviction crises of 2008 to 10, which are global. They're global. Ongoing part of a global ongoing land grab, characterized by higher rents and land prices, which are making which is making life unaffordable for uh, the global masses. You know, both both in developed nations like the United States and Canada, also in in the UK and Europe, but it, it, the same experience is being seen around the world, across the cities of of India and Africa. So we're looking at something like a long term tragedy and the t- ties and complications are only possible to understand by looking at this theme of eviction, this long saga of displacement. And what I what I set out to prove in the introduction is that that story has been going for a long time, it's been around for a long time, but there is one major point of punctuation. And that is a point that takes off in 1881, which is the date of the first modern rent control, and to land reform. What do I mean by land reform? I mean land redistribution. I mean a government charged with undoing the wrongs of the past by redistributing land, reparations and land. Where did this happen? This happened in Ireland. Irish historians are all nodding. They know all about it. <laughs> the Irish historians haven't ta- talked to the rest of you about how important <laughs>
0: this is. It was news for to some me some time. Yeah.
1: Um so so the the, the land reform of eighteen eighty one. Is crucial because if you start looking at the land reforms and redistributions of the twentieth century, they're usually talked about in the context of, of the Cold War of communism versus capitalism. So the the Russian land reform, the Russian redistribution of land, the Chinese redistribution of land loom large. But that Cold War story, that story about the influence of Karl Marx, does very little to explain why Ireland and The Mexican Revolution and events in recent India are being discussed at the newly founded United Nations in 1945 as a set of redistributed measures, which are absolutely necessarily the destiny for all former colonies on the face of the earth, communist or not, they have to undo the racist legacy of European landholding by redistributing the land from a tiny elite to the people of the nation. So, at the United Nations, there are there are many British, Irish, Australian, and American intellectuals who have been thinking about this 1881 reform, and they think that it is inevitable that a similar reform is going to happen in India. India has been working on a land reform. Land reforms are promised since the 1860s, certainly since 1887. Um, uh, but they also think that, s- that similar land reforms are overdue in most of Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And indeed that is what comes to pass. So you could tell that story uh, through the influence of the United States, through so the United States and Russia, but I think we miss out if we fail to understand These events, as contemporaries understood them, part of a global land war to return land to previously colonized people using the legislation, using courts, using the land courts in the pattern of Ireland, using land courts to undo the wrongs of European land confiscation.
0: I think readers might not expect a book about peasant resistance to lavish so much attention on a branch of the United Nations. Um, you know, you, you, as you mentioned here, you bring, you bring us, the, after the, talking about the land war, the titular land war in Ireland in the 1880s, you bring us up to the founding of the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, which becomes the major character of much of the rest of the narrative. And that actually took place a, a week before the UN itself was founded, which I was surprised to hear. Um, so can you tell us about that creation of that organization and, and why you see in it what you call the peasant origins of world government?
1: <laughs> That's right. So the FAO, the FAO, is not the branch of the United Nations that most Americans think of when they hear United Nations. We're much more familiar with UNESCO or the mm-hmm. Refugee Project, or you know, or or the World Health Organization. But but the FAO is, as you point out, the, mo- the most ancient branch of the United Nations. which tells us something. It tells us that in 1945, the work of the FAO, the FAO rhymes with cow, <laughs> its motto is fiat panis, let there be bread. The work of the fowl was considered absolutely urgent, totally urgent, both for averting famines like the ongoing famine that was going, on the ongoing famine in India, uh, and for uh, beginning the peaceful process of redistributing land to correct the European empire. Uh, and it was, if you look at the writing that's coming out of the FAO and the founders in the 1940s and 1950s, it's abundantly clear that they see their work on this kind of world systems level, reversing past sins. So take, for example, John Boyd Orr, the founding director general, who is fresh off of getting a Nobel Prize for his work in founding the FAO and his work in international nutrition. Uh, in 1953, he publishes his manifesto for what development should look like and it's called The White Man's Dilemma. It's clearly an answer to Kipling's White Man's Burden. But Orr is making clear that he thinks that the White Man's Dilemma is greed or land redistribution. And if the answer is greed, then the land redistribution will just be kicked down, kicked down the the road, and the world will have to deal with the legacies of racism hatred and impoverishment, decades to come. Seems mighty prescient. And Orr is not alone in his thinking. If you look at the heads of, the deputy heads of the divisions of the foul who were charged with supporting land reform in member nations, you find among them, uh, for example, the intellectual Rayner Schickele, who taught at North Dakota State and Iowa and Harvard. But he's, he's, he's at this point the new head of the Land and Water Division, and he writes several important textbooks in which he sets forth his theory of the peasant as a new leader in world history. So in my book, I, I, I make clear what these men are responding to, and what they're responding to is peasant action from below and working class action below, which is simultaneously rural and urban. In retrospect historians tended to talk about the the urban life of these episodes and the rural life on different pages but it it makes much more sense if you draw them together. So in chapter 1 I start off by sketching out what everyone knew in 1945 and I I describe what I call the land parade. And the land parade can be imagined as an ongoing series of protests and marches of social movements, which is nearly continuous from, say, 1879 uh, through the end of my period in 1974. Peasants who have organized around speakers who were talking about the necessity of redistribution of land, peasants who were showing up, who are sometimes counting how many people were evicted locally by foreign landlords who own the natural resources, para- Peasants who are doing their own calculations and numbers, peasants who are allied to make sure that the the rent control and the land court established by Great Britain in Ireland is working appropriately. My land parade starts off in Ireland in 1879, leading up to the land reforms of 1881. I pick it up again in London in 1945 as uh, GIs returning to the war. wind up squatting in abandoned buildings because there's a housing shortage, and they're protesting and marching in the streets of London, demanding homes fit for heroes. The government ain't good on its promises. I see it again uh, in India, India in the 1920s, as Gandhi is leading the future leaders of India. Uh, on a series of rent strikes at Champaran, these are, are the rent strikes are the initiative that will culminate in the much more famous Salt March. But it all starts in rent politics, land politics, walking through the fields and talking about how much tenants pay, self-consciously patterned after the Irish example. And then after the war, we see it again in India in the form of Vinoba Bhave's peaceful march for voluntary land redistribution, which is about even if even if the new government of India and the courts failed to redistribute land as they had promised to do, individual Indians can make land justice a reality by donating land to each other. So I see this ongoing land parade. Many of these marches take take uh, extend over many years, over hundreds of miles. They're pilgrimages, literal pilgrimages to a more just world. And I see them as, as clear a clear place where social movements which are embedded in peasant culture with peasant leaders with organic intellectuals among them are speaking to a body of intellectuals who are listening at the fau in 1945 one of the most important intellectuals is a woman named Doreen Borner who is associated with the kinder transport with getting jewish kids out of hitler's way conducting them to safe passage to Canada during the Second World War. Her grandfather is a Finnean, and Doreen Warner becomes, with this Irish example in mind, the premier intellectual who is preaching land reform to places like Egypt and Eastern Europe, and talking about the advantages of land reform as a third way, midway between communism and capitalism for the rest of the developing world. There's a clear continuity Rainer Schickele is talking about peasant leaders, the f- a future where women and minorities and indigenous people will become the most important leaders of all. John Boyd Orr is clearly on the platform of the peasant leaders. So the pe- the chapter is entitled provocatively, "the the peasant invention of global government," and I mean this is this this may it may be an overstated title. <laughs> but it's, you know, maybe we can put a question mark over it. Is it the peasant invention of global government? I, I meant this in a way as a correction to, um, to the, a history of r- writing about the institutions of global governance at the United Nations, League of Nations and the World Bank, uh, which, which assumes from the get-go that this is a world of rarefied elites and experts. I was trained in 18th century Britain And the class divides at the beginning of the 20th century are still vast, still important, but nowhere near the divides of experts and elites of 100, 200 years before. And that is important. It makes room for these occasional outbursts of radicalism of the kind that I think was operating for at least two decades at the Fowl.
0: Thanks. And in this section of the book, you also, I mean... I think it's well known how Western elites and experts are howling about overpopulation around the world when they're talking about development in this period. And, and one thing, you know, I think about Paul Ehrlich in Mumbai, but one of the things that I am ashamed to not know was that Indian economists are themselves responding to these, to these, these fears. Um, and you, and you really, you do great work with that. Can you tell us a bit about, about how they push back?
1: Yeah. So one of my characters is Samarsen. Sen is, uh, He's an Indian intellectual. He's one of the Bengali economists. And he started thinking about man-land ratios. And essentially his contention, which Rainer Shikali will take up and preach at the FAO, is that small farms can be every bit as productive and efficient as large farms if you have the right kind of technology. And the right kind of technology means cheap technology, technology which is correctly suited to the conditions in which you're working. Maybe some kind of scientific knowledge about what exactly what kind of soil there is. So the FAO sets up, Sam Arsene is the person who gives uh, Norris Dodd, second director general of the FAO, his, his, these ideas about what will eventually become known as appropriate technology. It's not known as appropriate technology, yet it's just known as as, as know-how tools and know-how. And so there's, you know, there's briefly a moment of consideration about whether the fowl should be the distributor of buckets and hoes all over the world to small farmers, because it's inevitable that we're going to have a small farmer world. Um, uh, And they decide that they're going to become the distributors of pamphlets and of paper of know-how and show-how versus instead of actual tools and buckets. And the idea here is that one of the magical things about the small farm is that it can become a miniature site of industry. So the small farmer who does very well might decide to specialize in making buckets for his fellow farmers. And then soon enough, you'll have a miniature factory, which could, could become a larger factory. So there are instances of this happening and people at the FOWL were gathering these examples. Uh, but they it's really clear if you look at them that they are... That North Dodd and Rainer Shikali are are they're interfacing with post-colonial intellectuals on purpose, right? This is not the story that we hear. If you t- if you look at um you know if you look at high diplomacy of India, you know India is in, in the position of being coerced at this moment into uh, a lot of different relationships with the United States, um and Russia. And this is obviously not what happens with the Rockefeller and Ford later on, and the improved varieties of rice uh, which are touched on as well but there is this moment the fowl and the fowl is trying to listen to post-colonial ideas about what would actually enrich peasants systems of land systems of economics and technology that would enrich peasants that don't necessarily require full-out birth control many of these post-colonial intellectuals believe that a higher man land ratio can be more productive more people on the farm on a small piece of farm farmland with enough tools. Um, and so, you know, you can have all the children that you want so long as so, so long as you've got a greenhouse and lots of buckets and you're intensively farming and what we would now call vertical, far- vertical farming, or you've done irrigation, you can make it productive, you can turn it into a bucket factory, you can have small farming can turn into industry and you can keep the population where it is rather than courting displacement that's, that's the initiative that's being preached from the developing world. Now, of course, that comes up against the German and American fears that readers are familiar with, uh, but against these population experts who, inspired by Malthus, are terrified that, uh, that rates of population in the developing world are going to swamp American resources for development. And uh, and and there is a showdown between these two points of view in a later chapter.
0: I want to loop back there because what you said about you know the fowl may have may have wanted to send hoses and buckets around the world, but they didn't have the resources to do that, and so they turned as you say, or as as you memorably call it in the book, they turned to uh, utopian paper. Um, and you don't treat it as a quick kind of wah wah like oops would have been nice. Um, you really you dwell there for quite a time a while, and and I wonder why you find. The organization's publications which became the kind of major kind of output and the people who wrote them so interesting and, and I hope you could also help us share how this paper trail leads you to the great economist Eleanor Ostrom
1: thank you for asking this question so you know one of the one of the one of the questions that was burning in my heart as somebody trained in 18th century European history I I wrote a first book on the making of modern bureaucracy in 18th century Britain, um, one of the things that I, I, you know, I really was was really sort of burning a hole in my my heart or my brain, um, as I was looking for a second project. You know, I was I was I was exploring the long durée and the way that many of us do. History professors uh, like you, Brian, like me, often teach in a survey, hundreds of years beyond their specialization. So I teach a history of capitalism course. It starts in 1350 and goes to the present. And in, the, in, in this course, you know, I found myself reading the great hits of modern development history. Um, why why is part of the world still so poor in the 20th century? So people like Matthew Connolly and Sam Moyne, Mark Mazower. so I was reading these, reading these wonderful studies and, you know, um, other great studies that have come out recently uh, and asking myself, you know, what is new here? Because much of the way that we talk about bureaucracy and development in the 20th century uses a vocabulary from Foucault to understand what's new about bureaucracy and government governance from a par. And we use that same same vocabulary. If we're talking about the eighteenth century, you're talking about the nineteenth century, we talk about abstraction and assortment and sometimes expertise. We talk about categorizing and dividing up people. Now, all of that is surely right. Now I you know the simple version is that at some point in early modern Europe, many European governments, began to use these new practices of scientific understanding of assortment and abstraction to govern their populations. And they, then that intensified over the history of the world. And now we do it even more. But I, I, as a historian from the 18th century visiting the 20th century, I find myself asking again and again, but why is it different to the 20th century? Is it just that there's more paper? And if it's more paper then that's, you know, that is interesting. What happens when you get so much paper that only a computer can read it? Hmm. What happens when you've got multiple files on every member of your population or foreign population? I mean, that's that's not what Cromwell is doing in (laughs) 17th century Ireland. You know, he's got some pieces of paper, but it's not not like social security. So I just really wanted to understand that. And so, you know, so that takes my, that question means that my, my story about peasants and peasant economics uh took a turn into paper a really hardcore turn into the technologies that made the foul work or were imagined to maybe make the foul an aid to peasants uh so you know the the the, the depressing version of this story is that at the foul there are intellectuals and visionaries who want to save the peasant. They want to end poverty. They want to end racism and hierarchy for good, and they turn to the mighty weapon of paper. Sad trombone. <laughs> Sad trombone. Um, the the you know the other version. The other way of telling that story is that they turn to the mightiest tool of making bureaucracies that there has ever been. They turn to paper files, and they they assemble the most ambitious plan to make files on the peasants of the world and the technology of the world and exactly what the peasants need that there has ever been and that takes that takes three forms one of those forms is the modern as the seed catalog a list of all of the all of the nurseries and growers who are who are producing and storing and selling seeds around the world with the idea that if A particularly productive version of rice or cotton has been tried out anywhere in the tropical belt around the globe. Maybe it would grow somewhere else in the tropical belt around the globe. So you can think about exchanges running from Madagascar to Thailand. Uh, And a a second technology is the map, the map, especially the map of soils. And this is a technology that has been Misunderstood, you know, misunderstood again, partially by way of Foucault. These, these maps that the United Nations has put out was putting out have been understood as a kind of imperial, grandiose vision of controlling and ordering the world. In the context in which they're produced, I'm pretty sure that they are being looked to by the experts at the FAO as as a tool for helping member governments to redistribute land to peasants redistribute land that had been seized hundreds of years ago by by European settlers, seizing that land by the government, uh, often with compensation, and then redistributing that land to native peoples to create a nation of smallholders, a nation characterized by economic opportunity where every Indian has a small plot of soil and can start growing things and maybe one day have a bucket factory. In order to do that well, you need to know what the soils are. Because if I, Brian, if I want to set you up on your own, on your own farm, and you're going to be growing rice and one day have a bucket factory, if I give you a piece of land that's entirely made out of sand, and I give your brother a piece of land that's nice loam, and they're exactly the same size, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> so the, the only intelligent way to, 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 to administer that kind of land redistribution is by first mapping the soil. So this is, geology has been around since the 18th century. It only got better. Land surveying is a big part of every land redistribution from the late, late 19th century through most of the 20th century. So the World Map of Soils is the name of this joint unesco FAO project to map all of those soils to make sure that land redistribution will work. It takes forever to get started. They're talking about how they need it in 1945. They... They don't, the, the last map is finally published in 1978. It's mostly too late by the time the map gets out. Is that the Fowler's fault? Well, they did the best they could. Took a long time to make that map. I, I mean, it's maybe it's not a case of imperial ambition so much as it's about ambitions exceeding the expertise
0: hmm. of the
1: technologists who have made them. So that's that's two. We've got the seed catalogs and the maps. The third technology is the bibliography and this is maybe the most challenging, bibliography. Bibliography, I still picture a nice lady in the school library with a bun. <laughs> I do not put, picture radical politics, but let me tell you.
0: Convince the us. Middle of
1: the 20th century, bibliography <laughs> is a radical art. I mean, listen. in all fairness, I'm not the first person to observe this. Lisa Gittleman is all over it. She understands. But but if you go into the United Nations archives with lisa gittleman is your guide lisa lisa gittleman on your mind then you will find that indeed there are amazing bibliographies of all of the information about land tenure and all of the information about getting rid of your landlord and small farmers and small farms and how to make them productive and why you don't have to forcibly limit population why population can be productive and and of course everything else how to grow fish how to grow palm trees uh improved varieties of rice the fowl sets off to collect all of this information with the idea that the fowl is going to be a master library for all of all for every ministry of agriculture everywhere in the world if you need information about setting up a worker cooperative the fowl is going to supply you with best practices from all over So this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's both incredibly banal and actually astonishing in its ambitions. And it has particular weaknesses, which are not characteristic of the weaknesses of bureaucracy in the 18th century. One of them is that the scale of bureaucracy can be hacked. It can be hacked by money, money from the U.S. pesticide industry. So at a certain point, the bibliographies are disproportionately weighted towards pesticide, pesticide research. There's tons of new pesticide research, right? I mean, like Google Scholar. Does Google Scholar reflect an ideal order of of man? No, it reflects what's being published. So did the foul bibliographies. Uh, you know, meanwhile, uh, Meanwhile, many, many social scientists in Europe and North America Many sociologists, rural sociologists, anthropologists, historians, political scientists are doing their darndest to supply this bibliography with information about what peasant self-governance looks like. And the FAO is collecting some of them into bibliographies of land tenure, and bibliographies of small farming and worker cooperatives, but the appetite falls off and there's so much more stuff on pesticides. So in a sense, they are hacked. In a, in a real sense, they are hacked by a kind of publisher parish in which uh, certain industrial interests get further than others. And one of the things that's particularly interesting about this moment when I say that the bibliography system was being hacked is that other people figured out how to do it. And one of those people is Eleanor Ostrom. In 1972, Eleanor Ostrom and her husband Vincent are at the University of Indiana, and they began to host a workshop called the Workshop of Political Economy, which is not an uncommon thing at all. They have workshops and seminars all the time. What they do that's different is that they establish a bibliography that goes alongside the workshop, where they're going to store copies of all of the papers given. And they have a very, very strict, narrow area of interest, which is communal administration of natural resources communal farming of land, communal grazing of cows in the Swiss Alps, communal administration of water in Spanish irrigation systems and in New Mexico, communal administration of fisheries offshore. What are the rules that govern them? And they have this strict filing system in part because Eleanor, Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom's modus of research, like that of many political scientists even today, is to code everything and then to add up all of the variables and then to compute that. And then she comes up with the rules and she comes up with the rules that govern the commons. And that is the book governing the commons, which wins her in 2009, the Nobel prize, the first Nobel prize in economics to go to a woman. Um, But what is, what is little appreciated is the fact that that entire body of thought is grounded in studies of the commons, which themselves are treated as a commons. Her bibliography is a commons. Very early on in the history of the internet, she pub- publishes all the PDFs for all of those studies as the digital library of the commons. You can go and check it out for yourself and you can look up all of the studies that she was reading on the history of grazing cows on common land, which she was using to, you know, to posit what, what was really an incredibly radical position even more radical than the position of the contemporary file. The contemporary file wanted to support small, small holders. Eleanor Ostrom's position was, perhaps there is some native intelligence, because they use the word native, perhaps there is some, there is some basic intelligence in indigenous and traditional systems of landholding where property is not divided into private property, where property is ho- held collectively, where natural resources, are held and administered collectively, and indeed her work showed that there is. So did the bibliography system fail? Hard to say, hard to say. It definitely got big, it was definitely hacked, but it produced other successes. For example, we did not know how wrong Garrett Hardin's thesis of the tragedy of the Commons was. We now know that, it, that this is very deeply flawed, and we know that because of the huge amount of resource assembled in a public bibliography system by Eleanor Ostrom.
0: In the 1960s, when your narrative gets to the 60s, you find increasing American opposition to land reform. Um, we kind of see it coming, but, but, and, and a lot of that is, is, of course, coming from anti-communism, which plays a big role. But you also cite race and environment as what you call triggers for this change. Um, how does that work?
1: Uh, so, in, let me just
0: tell a couple of stories. Great.
1: And in, uh, in, uh, let me first start outside the United States in Peru. So, Peru is one of the places, along with India, in which indigenous land rights are being fought out in a very real way. Organizers among indigenous people in the Quechua community in Peru have heard the good news of the Mexican Revolution. They have heard... and. There are Marxists among the, mar- the Marxists understand what this means. They understand that this means that land rights are going back to the people who originally owned the land, that the land seizures is associated with the haciendas and the powerful families of Spanish colonialism should be no more. And uh, the lawyer and radical Hugo Blanco leads a series of squats where Quechua people go in the middle of the night into the land of haciendas and they 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 erect their own huts they live there they claim it for themselves and they pour out into the streets of cuzco and they occupy public spaces they announce hey, this is the real meaning of occupation they're taking the land back they're taking the land back and ugo blanco is hauled into court and threatened with a death penalty and he cry he starts he he decries it. He decries it in a passionate speech in which he says, give me land or give me death. Tierra o oh, muerte. And the whole courtroom springs into chanting. Tierra o oh, muerte. Tierra o oh, muerte. Four years later, in New Mexico, there are Latinos who know that their ancestors were landholders under Spanish Empire and under Mexico, and that their their land rights were protected in the uh, in various treaties with Mexico when New Mexico became part of the United States. But the local white sheriff and his cronies have allowed people to seize their land, to move fence posts, to grab their cattle, and they are sick of it. They go and talk to the sheriff. They don't get listened to. And so they've been organizing. And in 1967, there is a gunfight. They kidnap the sheriff. They they exchange gunfire with federal troops. And uh, the walls of the community are covered with the slogan, tierra o muerte. Now, Latin American historians have attributed the slogan to the slogan of the liberal party in Mexico. Tierra y Libertad, the slogan of the the Mexican Revolution. But it is not that, it is Peruvian. And this is important because what it tells us is that there is a global audience for the indigenous people's struggles in Peru. And this makes a lot of sense because there are contemporary marches for Hugo Blanco and the Quechua people in London. The London squatters know about Tierra o Muerte. (laughs) So the Latinos know, but they're not the only people. So it's it I take it as significant. And so this is a this is a this is a historical argument um, based more around around timing than a paper trail. But I take it as significant that it's within two years of Tierra Amarillo, New Mexico, that we see the eruption of land rights movements in the African-American community and the indigenous community in North America in 1969, James Foreman, a former leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, issues a Black manifesto where he calls for uh, $200 million in federal payments to reverse the loss of farmland by Blacks. In 1969 to 1971, Indigenous North Americans and their supporters occupy Alcatraz Island. They squat on the island to claim to reassert the indigenous presence. This is all native land. We too deserve reparations. Uh, so, so there's an eruption of this same politics. I mean, in a sense, land redistribution politics, these claims were already here, right? It was, it was Irish Americans who were funding the original land war in Ireland. <laughs> it was Irish Americans from Chicago and Providence sending back money to Dublin that funded all of those rent strikes quite literally. And they were being documented blow by blow in the papers of New York and Chicago. And also talk about the Homestead Act. And there's a much longer history of land land redistribution on behalf of white Americans and Irish Americans in North America. But by 1968, 1969, Uh, Latino Americans, Indigenous Americans, and Black Americans have heard the news that there is a a global movement that entitles people like them, definitely entitles people like them to look look critically at history. Now, how are these movements received in American politics? Well, one of the, I I think they're received very poorly. Um, and, And to understand that, you know, I, I wish I had more time to go into this because the American, the American case is so important, but I noticed that part of the language of economic development economics of the time is the language of a crisis of rising expectations. This is how conservatives see land reform movements around the, the globe. Uh, peasants are getting a little bit more money, a little bit more power, and now they want everything. The images is of a toddler who who wants, <laughs> who wants something shiny and doesn't know when to stop. So that same logic is, I think, more or less the the reaction of American polit, the American public to these, to these worthy, worthy arguments about reparations and land for people of color. Uh, crisis of raising expectations. You get the sense, reading political debates at the time, that the Clean Air and Water Acts, the land use legislation that Reagan is behind, all of this, they have a lot of supporters when people of color start to make claims then then white america wants to drop it. and it is at that moment in 1974 that a world bank under robert mcnamara pulls the plug on the foul they pulled the plug on international land redistribution and that is the smoking gun of the entire book there's the report on land reform the world bank marked confidential that says no new world bank funding for land reform or for small farmers of any kind forget land ceilings forget redistributing wealth let's talk about land floors more industrial farms it's such you know if you look at it in context in 1972 alone there are there are big surveys of the political science and social science at the time that say small farms have everything going for them mcnamara isn't listening to them the world bank is not listening to them the world bank is having a a vicious reaction in the other direction and i think these questions of yes the environment but more importantly the race issue help to explain this violent counter reaction behalf on behalf of an american-led World bank which has had so many consequences on an international level
0: you call this the assassination of land reform but it is not where you end your book you spend not not there's not just a chapter at the end about hope there's there's an entire quarter of the book that remains um, about land reform after elites and national governments and international institutions walk away from it and and how these reform movements carry on or reinvent themselves and so many, so many really fascinating, inspiring stories. And, and of course, now when I finished the book, I look around and you see it everywhere still, right? Hashtag long land war all around us. Um, but, but I wonder if you'd share a couple of, of your favorite stories from this part of the book.
1: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah. Um, I'll, you know, one of the chapters is about participatory mapping. Participatory mapping is something that I've published about in the past. It's a, uh, uh Probably most of us have seen news stories at some point about students going around with smartphones and mapping all of the toilets in a Bombay slum or something. But uh, that's not where it got started. Already people were doing many-to-many mapping in the 1970s just with pencil and paper or drawing in the sand in a village. It was an organizer's tool. Instead of having one surveyor come in and make a map that's going to serve the government to tell them what needs to be done, What if we just had a day-long meeting with the entire village and we drew lots of maps of where the resources in the village are and what the village values? If the village's collective values were stated, what would we protect? And what comes out of these? You know, the documents of these are just amazing because you really do see uh, when you look at the transcripts of these meetings, and the, 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 the meetings are heavily documented. I went to two archives Uh, that are essentially organizers' archives of, like, all of the notes that were kept and all of the little presentations where organizers presented to each other. And they're just astonishing because they are documents of grassroots interactions for grassroots purposes at the beginning. Later it changes because there's a question, can these be used to reform government or reform the World Bank? The answer is no. (laughs) <laughs> no, they tried and it was co-opted big surprise that's uh i wrote an article about that but uh at the beginning it's 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 a local grassroots technique for for apprehending what the village knows and what the village cares about and turning that into the kind of document that a that a court can understand and so um, there's so many great stories about this brian and they would love to talk to you about it for an hour but yeah. three big ones John Gavinta, still alive, a hero, um, is is running the Highlander Center. That's right, the institution that changed Rosa Parks and one of the things that they do is they conduct a survey of rents in Appalachia, which proves that Appalachia is one of the most impoverished areas of the nation, partially because partially because it is the most highly tenanted ver- area of the nation, their absentee landlords, And the tenants have no ability to ratchet down the rents that they pay. So whatever wages they pay are paid are siphoned off, uh, siphoned off the top and handed to the landlord. Uh, So it's an amazing organizer's document. Uh, It's talked and it it goes on tour. Gaventa is invited to Chennai to present to a workers' union in the 1980s. That, everyone's talking about this. Um, another another famous hit is um, the mapping of, of natural resources in Beaver and Cree territory in Canada, which actually goes to court and uh, enables some protections against logging and mineral rights interests that are trying to take away uh, resources that belong to Indigenous people. They're able to do, do that in, to protect it in part because they're able to create these maps out of traditional stories, turn, turn stories into maps. So they're retooling this 18th century tool of the state, the state survey into a tool of the people. And this is you know, this is one of these places where you like, you know, Foucault, Fu, like baby Foucault says it you know, really simplified. Foucault is all maps are tools of power. That's you know, Dennis Cosgrove simplified. Uh, but actually, sometimes it's more complicated. And in the Long Land War, all of this gets more complicated. And maybe number three, you know, Nariana Sami and Tamil Nadu is mapping ter- tannery effluents. So villages are actually using these tools to combat pollution in local waterways. We can, and that's you know how those tools are being used today by by outfits like public lab. This story is still ongoing. These people invented it. It's been reinvented several times. Uh, but this is still one of the most powerful grassroots techniques that we have for fighting pollution and for controlling the development, one area of, of the earth, one, one area at a time. If you can't have a centralized authority, the United Nations, the FAU that's, that's, uh, administering justice and, and redistributing land in an appropriate way. Maybe second best is, uh, is, is grass, strong grassroots, strong grassroots of local administration of territory. And I say it's, it's second best only because uh, one of, in the examination of these movements, one of the things that they cannot do is they cannot really overturn global Is grass, strong grassroots organizing, cannot go head to head with the, World Bank and win. So there are limits on on what you can expect strong grassroots organizing to amount to. You know, there really is a sense in which we need something like a global government of land today to combat those wider issues.
0: Thank you for sharing those stories, and it kind of all adds up to what you call for as an occupancy-focused environmentalism. And, and really, the way you're trying to this book is meant to speak to scholars, but also very much to, to activists today. And I'm grateful for that. It's it's a book that's so so kind of magnificent that you could just put it out there and then call it a career. But I've been to your website and I can tell that you're not planning to retire anytime soon. <laughs> you're you're just we're just getting started, and so I, I'd love to hear if, you, if are there any future projects that you're ready to to give it a preview of to, to our listeners.
1: Uh, yes, so you know anybody who reads How Not uh, the Long Land War and is left wanting more, do not fear. It started <laughs> off as a truly long durée. Serve a, a truly long durée study. Well, moyen durée. My long durée is not actually that long. It's not like Broadwell, but it started off as a 200-year story, and then there was just too much material. I had to chop it into two books. So, um, I I am working on the 19th century story, "How Not to Kill Your Landlord," which is a story about peasant organizing and data, In the 19th century peasants and women collecting their own data and using it to influence parliament inventing the first rent controls and land reform um really i think an inspiring story for the future of organizing uh for how to think about landscape and how to think about justice in the landscape i am i am i am really attracted to forms of history which help us to think into the future not only to reveal the silences and lies of the past um the um, but uh if you're, you may be waiting on that for some time because uh, I'm still in the process of revising. Before that comes out, uh, I have a book on contract with Cambridge, um, forthcoming. Uh, it's going to copy editing right now. The dangerous art of text mining is uh, my book, my my soup to nuts survey of um, some of the some of the frontiers of knowledge that we just winked at. In the history manifesto i've spent the last seven years uh, running a digital history lab where we have exhaustively tried out natural language processing techniques in order to see if they can take us closer to historical truths over the long run i've published many many articles about this and i've run into some roadblocks there are places where a big surprise quantitative thinking and qualitative thinking are at odds Every natural language processing computer scientist, their first question to me is, what do you want to predict? Every historian <laughs> I talked to, I mentioned digital history and they say you're not one of those people who thinks you can predict the future, are you? <laughs> so I I wanted to unpack these shibboleths, and I walked through them with the aid of Casselik and Popper, and Asimov, and Jill Lepore, you know, people who are good at thinking cognitively about what the data tells us, and what the data can't tell us, and what do we need to drop it. And I am very interested in the activist uses of this technology. Um, So in the very last chapter, I advanced something called auditing, auditing instead of critique great advantage of these text mining tools is that they can be automated. And so I demonstrate in that last chapter uh, how you can use digital text mining techniques to tell you the names of the six members of the U.S. Congress who were solely responsible for 90% of the slurs against environmentalists from 1980 to 2010, Wow! I have their names. <laughs> and if you are eager to see those names, you have only to look at, look out for a uh, an article to be published in ISIS this summer. Ooh. Look out for it, or you can look for the abbreviated version of the idea from critique to audit, which just came out in the U Chicago journal, Know, a journal in the formation of knowledge. That's K-N-O-W, Know. Uh, so, so watch out for it. Text mining is auditing.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Everything. And, and the prequel, Wait, this is all sounds, this all sounds great. Well, the book again is The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. Its author is, and my guest has been Joe Gouldy. Its publisher is Yale and it comes out today. So what are you waiting for? Go, go get your copy now. Thank you Joe, so much for your time and for this magnificent book.
1: Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed talking to you. Have a great day.